II of Fort Concho, Its Why and Wherefore, by J. N. Gregory. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From the end of the war until 1867, the frontier settlements had no organized military forces to protect them from the Indians, and it was against the law for Texans to carry guns. Added to this were the turmoils of Reconstruction, which were about as bitter in the populated parts of the state as they were in other parts of the South. The occupying United States Army under General Phil Sheridan was now mostly recruited from among the Negroes, and the Army was not used against the Indians until 1867, when orders went out to get busy and put the forts and camps in order. Footnote 4 the negro regiments on the texas frontier during these indian times were the ninth and tenth cavalry and the twenty fourth and twenty fifth infantry End footnote. general sheridan's name was about as popular in virginia and texas as general w t sherman's was in georgia and mississippi but both Sherman and Sheridan came to Texas, and Sherman, after narrowly escaping the loss of his scalp on the Texas frontier, finally realized the necessity of a last organized military effort to either rid the country of the Indians or give it back to them. That was in 1871. However, in 1869, a new alignment of the forts had been seen as necessary never again reoccupied were certain of the interior ones such as worth graham gates crogan martin scott lincoln chadbourne and ewell lasalle county fort belknap on the salt fork of the brazos river in young county had been the largest military post in north texas prior to the civil war in 1867 the sixth cavalry was ordered to prepare it for reoccupation they worked for five months, but then this fort was ordered evacuated, and its place was taken by a new one, Fort Griffin, some 37 miles up the clear fork of the Brazos from Belknap. Now, to extend the northeasterly trending line of forts closer to the Indian Territory, the Army built Fort Richardson near the present town of Jacksboro. The site chosen as the replacement for Fort Chadburn to be called Fort Concho was at the confluence of the North Concho River with the combined waters of the Middle Concho, Spring Creek, Dove Creek, and the South Concho, the last three named streams being fed by bountiful springs. This abundance of water and the geographically central location marked the spot as the natural convergence of trails from east, northeast, and south Texas before they headed westward for Horsehead Crossing and El Paso. Nature had been kind to this oasis in an otherwise desolate region. The fishing was extremely good, and the clear waters of the stream supported mussels, the variety that produces gem pearls, hence the Spanish name of Concho. Herds of buffalo grazed within sight of the new fort. Quail and turkey were plentiful. The three new positions, Concho, Griffin, and Richardson, located on a line 220 miles long, as yet unconnected by either telegraph or rail, would soon be the centers of men, supplies, and animals for the campaigns that finally broke the concerted powers of the Indians. These campaigns carried the soldiers from the Indian Territory and the New Mexico Territory on the north to the actual interior of Old Mexico on the south. From the times in 1866 and 1867, when Richardson and Concho were ordered built until 1871, 
the troops undertook no organized campaigns against the indians the settlers suffered constantly and the indians learned new tricks many more learned how to live off government bounty on the reservations in indian territory then hit the warpath along with their wild brethren from the texas panhandle they were amply protected on their return to the reservations by the indian agents in charge who believed their wards could do no wrong why they would ask would an indian steal cattle when he had all the buffalo meat he wanted a cavalry expedition out of Fort Concho, working the edges of the Llano Estacado in 1872, captured a Comanchero who told how he and his companions traded the Indian arms, ammunition, and supplies for cattle, horses, and sheep that they had stolen during their raids. He even showed the soldiers the well-worn trails across the Llano Estacado toward Santa Fe and the valley of the Rio Grande thus the secret was finally revealed to the army it seems unbelievable at this time that such ignorance could prevail over the cries and protests of the texas ranchmen who were losing cattle by the tens of thousands footnote five during the civil war the cattle on the open texas ranges increased many fold with the loss by the confederacy of control of the mississippi river after that war they so far exceeded local demand that cattle drives on a much larger scale than ever before attempted got under way the chisholm and western trails from anywhere in texas on north through the western part of the indian territory entrained cattle in kansas for the eastern feedlots the goodnight loving trail running west along the middle concho river thence north along the pecos and on parallel to the front ranges supplied cattle for the new ranches being opened from new mexico to the canadian border End footnote. but such was the case and in eighteen sixty seven the comanches even stole horses from the post herd at fort concho we must remember that in that same year the mild policies of president andrew johnson in washington were overruled by the radicals in the united states congress and the bitter years of reconstruction followed for the southern states all former confederate soldiers were deprived of the vote and radicals carpetbaggers scalawags from the south and freed negroes ruled the state the army was used not to fight indians but to guard the new social system the prospect appeared brighter for the settlers when in the fall of eighteen sixty nine one hundred soldiers from fort concho managed to engage an indian force on the salt fork of the brazos river it was a drawn fight but immediately thereafter a larger force from the same fort engaged and defeated the indians in the same area texans were cheered by the news of this new tone of aggressiveness shown by the army it was the only way the war had to be carried to the indians the same way earl van dorn had carried the fight to them on the eve of the civil war but the time for real action had not arrived even as late as eighteen sixty nine on february eighteenth eighteen seventy a citizen was killed and scalped within one quarter of a mile of the post limits at fort concho in january of the same year eighteen mules were stolen from the quartermaster's corral at that same post the same year eighteen seventy while colonel grierson was building fort sill in the indian territory chief kicking bird a kiowa defeated the command of captain c b mcclellan near the present town of seymour 
As late as March of 1872, a wagon train was waylaid near Grierson Springs in Reagan County and the Teamsters killed by the Indians. Two companies of the 9th Cavalry came upon the scene by accident, engaged the Indians, but withdrew before a decision was reached. Footnote 6 Captain Lewis Johnson, 24th Infantry, related, quote, That was the year in which I changed stations twice, marching from Fort Stockton all the way to Fort Brown. On my way, in March 1872, I think, occurred an attack on a freight train at Howard's Well, Grierson Springs, Reagan County. It was a train from San Antonio intended for Fort Stockton, end quote. Testimony before House Committee on Military Affairs, 45th Congress, Second Session, Washington, D.C., December 4, 1877. The lamentations of the border people were finally heard in Washington, and in April 1871, General W.T. Sherman came to San Antonio. The next month, accompanied by General Randolph B. Marcy and an escort of 17 men, he left for an inspection of the frontier. General Marcy was the same officer, then Captain Marcy, who in 1849 and later had played such an important part in exploring and reporting to Congress on trails through Texas. The great explorer was still an outdoor man of action. The little expedition proceeded by way of Bern, Fredericksburg, the old Spanish fort on the San Saba, which had withstood a great Comanche Indian siege in 1758. Fort McCavitt, Kickapoo Springs, and Fort Concho. From Fort Concho it followed the military trail on, northeasterly, by the remains of Fort Chadburn and Phantom Hill, and on towards Belknap. General Marcy's journal is of great interest. He relates, quote, We crossed immense herds of cattle today, which are allowed to run wild upon the prairie, and they multiply very rapidly. The only attention the owners give them is to brand the calves and occasionally go out to see where they range. The remains of several ranches were observed, the occupants of which have either been killed or driven off to the more dense settlements by the Indians. Indeed, this rich and beautiful section does not contain today, May 17, 1871, as many white people as it did when I visited it 18 years ago, and if the Indian marauders are not punished, the whole country seems to be in a fair way of being totally depopulated. He continues, May 18, 1871. This morning five Teamsters, who with seven others had been with a mule wagon train en route to Fort Griffin, Captain Henry Warrens, with corn for the post, were attacked on the open prairie about ten miles east of Salt Creek by one hundred Indians, and seven of the Teamsters were killed and one wounded. General Sherman immediately ordered Colonel Mackenzie to take a force of 150 cavalry with 30 days' rations on pack mules and pursue and chastise the marauders." End quote. An interesting angle to this affair was that Sherman's party had been observed by the same Indians who murdered the Teamsters, but were unmolested by them because they were waiting for the wagon train, which they considered nearer top priority. Sherman realized later that he had nearly lost his scalp. Footnote 7 The Salt Creek Massacre took place near the town of Graham. End footnote 
this colonel mackenzie had reported in at fort concho as commanding officer on september sixth eighteen sixty nine born in new york july twenty seventh eighteen forty and christened ranald slidell he had graduated first in his class at west point in eighteen sixty two he served in the Union Army during the Civil War, received several wounds in action, and was a brigadier general when that war closed. The remainder of his professional life was devoted to active high command in the Indian Wars. At various times he served at Forts Brown, Clark, McAvitt, Concho, and Richardson, engaging in his last Indian fight at Willow Creek, Wyoming, in 1876. He was retired from the Army for disability in 1884 and died a bachelor at New Brighton, New York, in 1889. Along with Mackenzie, Colonel William Rufus Shafter, who arrived to command at Fort Concho in January 1870, the War Department had its two best young officers serving in the West Texas Theater. Shafter had no West Point training. Born in Michigan on October 16, 1835, he entered the Union Army in the Civil War as a first lieutenant, and by the end of that war had been breveted Brigadier General of Volunteers. He was later awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for service during the war. He was commissioned Lieutenant Colonel of Regulars in 1869, and first saw service in West Texas with the 24th Infantry at Fort McAvitt. Later in life, he was to command the American armies in Cuba during the Spanish-American War. During the summer of 1871, while commanding forces at Fort Davis, he set out with cavalry from both Forts Davis and Stockton and pursued a large raiding party of Indians from the Fort Davis area northeasterly until the trail moved into the great sand dune country near where the city of Monahans now stands. He spent fourteen days in this pursuit, but as was usual in such matters, could never force an engagement. However, he learned that the heretofore dreaded sand dunes contained fresh water a few feet below the surface in several places, and that the area was a great refuge for Indians and was one of those rendezvous where horse and cattle-stealing Indians met the Comanchero traders from New Mexico. The command at Fort Concho, as at the other forts, rotated in a perpetual manner. After service elsewhere, Mackenzie returned to Concho to organize five companies of the 4th Cavalry and a headquarters company for service at Fort Richardson, nearer the Indian Territory. His column moved out March 27, 1871, cavalry, pack mules, and wagons. The bachelor commander even allowed wives of the men to accompany the expedition as far as the new headquarters at Fort Richardson. The weather was crisp and cold as they forded the North Concho and soon passed Mount Margaret, named after the most accomplished, loving, and devoted wife of one of our favorite captains, E.B. Beaumont. Beaumont, beautiful mountain. So wrote Captain Robert G. Carter, historian and winner of the Congressional Medal of Honor in the Indian Wars, who was a member of the expedition. Mount Margaret is the outstanding hill at Tennyson. They pitched camp the first night at Old Fort Chadburn, from where they followed the military trail, passing en route huge herds of buffalo as they went on by Forts Phantom Hill, Belknap, and on into Richardson. 
Two months later, in May, Colonel Mackenzie roused his 4th Cavalry at Fort Richardson and set out to obey General Sherman's orders issued after the killing of the Teamsters at Salt Creek. But it began to rain. After a futile chase, Colonel Mackenzie headed for Fort Sill, commanded by Colonel Benjamin H. Grierson. There he learned that Sherman had left, but not before the chiefs Satank, Sitting Bear, Big Tree, and Satanta, White Bear, had returned to the reservation at Sill and boasted of murdering the Teamsters. Mackenzie arrested and escorted the three Indians to Jacksboro for trial in the Texas court. Satank purposely got himself killed by a guard on the march, but Satanta and Big Tree were later sentenced to prison in the state penitentiary at Huntsville. The duplicity of these reservation Indians should now have been apparent to even Grierson and the Indian lovers in Washington and Austin, but it was not. A good insight into the Indian problem of the times, and of which we have a written record, appeared at the trial of the two Indian chiefs during July of 1871 in the little log courthouse on the public square of Jacksboro. Charles Soward was the presiding judge, Samuel W. T. Lanham, later to be a two-term governor of Texas, was the district attorney. The court appointed Thomas Fall and Joe Woolfolk of the Weatherford Bar to represent the defendants. Thomas Williams, the foreman of the jury, was a frontier citizen and a brother of the governor of Indiana. The principal witnesses against the defendants were Colonel Mackenzie, Lowry or Lowry, Tatum, the Indian agent who had heard their statements at Fort Sill, and Thomas Brazil, the teamster who had escaped from the Salt Creek massacres. Our Captain Carter wrote, quote, Under a strong guard, accompanied by his counsel and an interpreter, the chief, clanking his chain, walked to the little log courthouse on the public square. The jury had been impaneled, and the district attorney bustled and flourished around. The whole country, armed to the teeth, crowded the courthouse and stood outside, listening through the open windows. The chief's attorneys made a plea for him and referred to the wrongs the red man had suffered, how he had been cheated and despoiled of his lands, and driven westward until it seemed there was no limit to the greed of the white man. They excused his crime as just retaliation for centuries of wrong. The jurors sat on long benches, each in his shirt sleeves, and with shooting irons strapped to his hip. Satanta got up to defend himself before his accusers. Over six feet tall, the perfect figure of an athlete, and well known as the orator of the plains who could sway counsels of both whites and Indians, he could well have influenced the jury by mute silence, but instead he lied and dissembled to save his life. He never mentioned the wrongs done his people by the whites. Instead, speaking through the interpreter, he proceeded as follows, quote, I have never been so near the Tahanas, Texans, before. I look around me and see your braves, squaws, and papooses, and I have said in my heart, if I ever get back to my people, I will never make war upon you. I have always been the friend of the white man, ever since I was so high indicating by sign the height of a boy. My tribe have taunted me and called me a squaw because I have been the friend of the Tahanas. I am suffering now for the crimes of bad Indians, of Satank and Lone Wolf and Kicking Bird and Big Bow and Fast Bear and Eagle Heart, 
and if you will let me go, I will kill the three latter with my own hand. End quote. The evidence against the two chiefs was debated by the jury, and both were sentenced to death. The sentence was later commuted to life imprisonment. Now a few statements from the court record as to what the district attorney had to say point to some of the misunderstandings of the times when it came to the Indian problem on the western frontiers. The following excerpts from his plea before the court show clearly not only the feeling of the frontiersmen towards the uncontrolled Indians, but also the contempt in which they, both frontiersmen and Indians, held the people who by appeasement, crookedness, and ignorance tried to manage the Indian affairs of the nation from a faraway city. Quote, Satanta, the veteran council chief of the Kiowas, the orator, the diplomat, the counselor of his tribe, the pulse of his race. Big Tree, the young war chief, who leads in the thickest of the fight and follows no one in the chase. The mighty warrior with the speed of the deer and the eye of the eagle are before this bar in the charge of the law. So they would be described by Indian admirers who live in more secured and favored lands remote from the frontier, where distance lends enchantment to the imagination, where the story of Pocahontas and the speech of Logan the Mingo are read and the dread sound of the war hoop is not heard. We who see them today, disrobed of all their fancied graces, exposed in the light of reality, behold them through far different lenses. We recognize in Satanta the arch-fiend of treachery and blood, the cunning Catiline, the promoter of strife, the breaker of treaties signed by his own hand, the inciter of his fellows to rapine and murder, as well as the most canting and double-tongued hypocrite where detected and overcome. In Big Tree we perceive the tiger-demon who tasted blood and loved it as his own food, who stops at no crime, how black soever, who is swift at every species of ferocity, and pities not at any sight of agony or death. He can scalp, burn, torture, mangle, and deface his victims with all the superlatives of cruelty, and have no feeling of sympathy or remorse. We look in vain to see in them anything to be admired or even endured. Powerful legislative influences have been brought to bear to procure for them annuities, reservations, and supplies. Federal munificence has fostered and nourished them, fed and clothed them. From their strongholds of protection they have come down upon us like wolves on the fold. Treaties have been solemnly made with them, wherein they have been considered with all the formalities of quasi-nationalities. Immense financial rings have had their origin in, and draw their vitality from, the Indian question. Unblushing corruption has stalked abroad, created and kept alive, through the poor Indian whose untutored mind sees a god in clouds or hears him in the wind. For many years, predatory and numerous bands of these pets of the government have waged the most relentless and heart-rending warfare upon our frontier, stealing our property and killing our citizens. We have cried aloud for help. It is a fact well known in Texas that stolen property has been traced to the very doors of the reservation, and there identified by our people to no purpose. End quote. 
Mackenzie realized those things and knew he could receive no cooperation from Grierson at Fort Sill. So in September, acting on orders, concentrated a force of eight companies of the 4th Cavalry, two companies of the 11th Infantry, and 30 Tonkawa Indian scouts at Old Camp Cooper near Fort Griffin. The infantry would be used to guard the supply bases as he moved northwesterly in the hope of engaging the wild brethren under Chief Quana. He bivouacked in the mouth of Blanco Canyon and lost sixty-odd horses to an Indian raid that night. The next day the command moved up the canyon and later came out on the flat prairie of the Llano Estacado. A large retreating body of Indians was sighted, but a norther blew up, and Mackenzie was forced back down the canyon by the cold weather. He withdrew to Fort Richardson, where the command arrived in late November. He accomplished nothing, and as for himself, he received an arrow wound during a small skirmish in the canyon. End of Part 2